You're listening to Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. Deal by Deal invites you to conversations with experienced independent sponsors and other private equity professionals. Join McGuire Woods partners Greg Hover, Jeff Brooker, and Rebecca Brophy as they explore middle market private equity M&A to provide you with timely insights and relevant takeaways. Hi, this is Jeff Brooker. Welcome to Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. With us today, we have private equity partners in our Raleigh office, Anne Cruteau and Alex Horn. Anne had given back in October at the McGuire Woods independent sponsor conference a discussion on control between independent sponsors and their capital providers. And it's an interesting topic, one that comes up in every deal and it's important and we thought warranted further discussion. Anne and Alex have pretty extensive experience navigating a variety of scenarios with uh, various capital providers. And so we thought a podcast episode with their insights would be uh, interesting for folks. So with that, I will hand it off to Anne and Alex. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here and um, talking to everybody. Always appreciate everything you and the rest of the firm do for the Independent Sponsor Conference. It gives the firm a great name. Um, I can't tell you how important it is to a bunch of um, clients, including our, our finance clients. So we we tend to, we've worked a lot over the last decade with a number of independent sponsors and a lot of their financing partners. And I think, you know, as you think about setting up these independent sponsor deals and the acquisitions that they're bringing to the table, when you're talking about, you know, to the extent they don't have the full financial equity backing to, to complete the deal themselves and they're looking for partners, there are two sets of partners we tend to see. One is maybe a family office that is going to be pure equity, and that creates a certain type of potential rights and control positions. And then the other situation we tend to see is you've got a lender often a small business investment company or an SBIC that is also doing a significant equity backing, not always an SBIC, but that you've got also a lender at the table. And so those create two different situations for potential control issues for the independent sponsor. I think a lot of times the family office or the pure equity uh, co-investor may be looking for some more control out of the gate. The SBIC or another lender with a significant equity co-invest would tend to also have a secured loan, even if in a mezzanine or subordinated second lien position, that would protect their investment, and that gives them some different rights. But there are a couple different ways that I we tend to see these control rights cut, and sometimes it comes down to the amount of the financial backing from somebody else, right? If the, small, if the independent sponsor is putting up, call it, I don't know, 15, 20%, even, you know, the typical equity sponsors only putting, putting up 30% of the total cap stack. If the independent sponsor is able to write a significant equity check, we will often see them take control right out of the gate and have a lot of control going forward. To the extent it is more of a typical IS model where they're putting up very little of the uh, initial equity check and taking a carry and a management fee, that can go a couple different ways. If that independent sponsor has a significant track record or significant equity or, excuse me, industry experience, they can often command more control out of the gate because they're going to know how to run this company better than basically anybody else in in all likelihood. 
to the extent they don't bring those things to the table, uh, we will often see board control uh, out of the gate in control of the real financial backers with a significant role for the independent sponsor, but board control with the other with the other equity folks. When the independent sponsor does have significant industry experience or financial wherewithal, they might retain board control right out of the gate, and the financial backer would have significant veto rights over significant incurrences of indebtedness, acquisition, any big company changes with the right to potentially take control in a downside scenario. So that's kind of, that's, that's a very, very quick and dirty, but kind of a quick guideline to the, the general rules that we're seeing in the market. And I would just say, you know, building off of kind of the second example Ann was talking about where there's an SBIC or another debt provider who's also writing a significant equity check. I think, you know, typically if if it's a significant amount of equity, they're going to look for a board seat, but they may not have, you know, control over the board. And certainly, you know, as Ann alluded to earlier, just given the role as a secured lender, they obviously have kind of the hammer of the secured lender remedies if, if things really go sideways. So they're, they're kind of thinking with both hats in that scenario. And, you know, to the extent that there isn't a uh, significant equity check, a lot of times those SBICs are really just looking for a board observer, right, where they're, you know, attending meetings but not, not having a, a vote on formal board matters. And this is Jeff. How, how should folks think about, you had mentioned the financing party when they don't have board control would expect some veto rights. How should independent sponsors think about what those veto rights would be? What's the proper scope? Is it different in different circumstances? No, that's a great question. I, I think that there is a general kind of um, ballpark in which they run that Basically, any big corporate decision above a certain monetary threshold that financial investor is going to want to have some control over. They don't want to get into the day-to-day. They don't want to get, get into the nitty-gritty. They want this company. And most, most financial investors don't want to have to actually be involved in the day-to-day. That's not their job. That's not their focus. It takes them away from their main focus, which is finding additional investments. So I think you can talk about largely very high threshold, fairly high thresholds. You know, it depends. If you've got a, call it, this is a three to five million dollar EBITDA acquisition, maybe platform acquisition, maybe even higher. You know, if you're if the company is looking to do add-on acquisitions above a million dollars from there, or uh, debt incurrences. Out of you know, there's probably going to be some indebtedness incurred in the initial platform acquisition, and if they want to do something further, again, in excess of it depends on the size EBITDA of the company, but it's going to be gauged from there. It could be from five hundred thousand to one million to two million. It's really outsized decisions. Part of the reason that the financial investor is backing this independent sponsor is because they don't want to run the company. So as long as the independent sponsor is running the company appropriately. But there, there are also usually financial. There are some hurdles about, you know, capex, and this this goes back to what Alex mentioned. When you have a situation where your financial investor is also a debt a, a debt investor, that's going to be very significantly policed by um, by those debt documents, and so they're not right. going to need this the same veto right. And 
you know, it, it really becomes, I've also seen different sets of veto rights depending on how the company is performing, which again, kind of aligns with the idea of a credit facility. Yeah, and a lot of those, a lot of those rights are really going to overlap with what's in the loan agreement already to the extent that there's an SBIC fund providing both debt and equity. And so, you know, think like things like incurrence of indebtedness or significant asset sales or acquisitions are all typically going to be governed by that loan agreement. So there is some overlap there, but, but a lot of times those folks want to protect themselves in the, in the event, obviously that they're, that they're to get, that gets refinanced and that, you know, they're, they're kind of stuck just in an equity position. So they still want a, a seat at the table when it comes to those bigger corporate decisions, even if their debt is gone. Got it. And then you'd also mentioned that there, sometimes there would be a board takeover provision. And so, you know, if the, if the independent sponsor wasn't properly running the company, then the financial backer would be able to step in and take board control. What do you typically see as those triggers? I know that's very important to think about for the independent sponsor. What we want is the appropriate time for the financial partner to be able to take over because, you know, they don't want to, that's an important inflection point where they, you know, could potentially, you know, lose control of their deal and potentially lose a little bit of credibility and reputation for anyone who finds out about that. So what, what are the, the hot buttons and the things to think about when an independent sponsor is, or a capital provider is, is negotiating those revisions? Yeah, I think that um, primarily those, I mean, there's the big, there's the big issues, right? If, if there is any sort of insolvency threat or bankruptcy, that's kind of the DEFCON uh, provision. But a lot of times they'll have it keyed to certain financial performance. And this gets also, again, into a crossover a little bit with a credit facility. So even if the financial um, backer does not have a credit facility, if the company has, is getting too upside down on its credit yeah, in terms of its leverage, uh, the leverage ratio of how much debt it has to its earnings, uh, and that could be the result of an increase either in the debt uh, or often a non-performance and slide back in the earnings. If they're getting upside down on that, they're not able to meet their general coverage, any sort of fixed charge coverage. They're not able to meet their obligations as they come due on a regular basis with sufficient cushion. And usually there is a period of uh, several quarters where that would not be met. So it's not necessarily yanking control immediately, but if you're establishing over a period of two to three fiscal quarters that the company is backsliding, that is frequently a time when the company might be able to take board, uh, when the financial backer might be able to take board control. I've seen this actually. So go ahead, please, Jeff. Sorry. Yeah. And, and just on that point, are you talking about sort of in the documents governing the equity piece of the investment in those in those scenarios, that's right. Or, even, even, yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Even in, even, even if you've got somebody who does not have any debt investment, so who who would not be relying on any credit facility, I have often seen some sort of a marker that is very similar to what you would see in a credit facility, because really, what you're trying to capture, by and large, is any sort of investor at a certain point, depending on how much you have invested, is how is the company performing. Right? Is there a point at which 
I don't think this company is performing and I'm concerned about the situation such that I want to take control and change management or do something. And a lot of times these financial or the, the financial investor is not necessarily going to take control themselves as opposed to have the right to potentially replace the CEO, the management, cut off management fees. Uh, again, this playbook, I, I, I know I sound repetitive. So the playbook, even from an equity financial back, uh, backer in this situation, tends to look very much like a, a, a debt financial backer. But the other interesting thing is it can flip back, too. I've, you, know, you can almost see the, the dual flip. So, for instance, we're working with a company. I'm actually in the process of selling a company right now that was a 2012 platform independent sponsor, very, very, very knowledgeable in the environmental uh, services industry. Sponsor had been at Chase Capital Partners for years, developed an industry expertise, went out on their own, and had a had a deal that just had, this was two SBICs, actually financial backers, both in terms of debt and equity, but went the industry just went a little sideways. Some of the things they did, they did some add-on acquisitions that just didn't pan out. It was not helpful. And so they actually, uh, there was a point at which the senior lender, this is back in 2016, so four years after the platform acquisition, the senior bank lender at that point was agitating to get out. They didn't like the deal anymore. Uh, they didn't like the balance sheet. So the two SBICs, uh, who were providing second lien financing as well as a significant, a significant amount of the equity financing. They uh, converted uh, a, a significant amount of their debt to equity, uh, and that has its own considerations, but we don't have to go into that here. It's a different podcast. And it, the company struggled for a couple of years, but has been on a fast track uh, since 2019 has some very, very lucrative co- uh, contracts that have taken it from basically two to three million of EBITDA to in the past year, seven million of EBITDA and is now uh, being sold. And the independent sponsor has ties to a lot of prospective buyers and is incredibly valuable. So they basically renegotiated the right to get certain management fees and an investment banking fee in lieu of an investment banker if they don't have to go to an investment banker for the sale. And it's, it's been very cooperative. That's the, that's the other thing about, honestly, at least in the lower middle market, there are a lot of times these things are cooperative and not super contentious. This independent sponsor shut up, was willing to shut up their management fee for a period of a year or two while the company was recovering. They understood the situation, and they're now looking to kind of recapitalize on that. So there's been a kind of shifting of control back and forth, if you will. And on that one, can you remind me, did the did the lenders have a significant equity co-invest before the before kind of the downturn for the company? They did. Uh, yeah, they did, and that's a good question. They did have a significant equity co-invest, but it was not control until they converted right. some of their debt to equity. Right. Even at the point they took control, it was always very consensual with the independent sponsor because I think as knowledgeable as at least one of the equity backers was in, in the industry. Uh, it was really the independent sponsor who had such significant understanding of the industry and the players in, in, in the industry and was clearly doing the right thing by working to replace management, get the right people in place, doing the smart thing with the company after a couple backslides, that that reestablished the independent sponsor. Clearly, I'm not sure reestablished is the right word. Potentially, it was just reiterated that despite some bad decisions or some unfortunate decisions, 
this was an independent sponsor who knew how to run this company, who knew the industry, and that was a very that may be a very different situation from somebody who doesn't have that track record and experience. And, and I think it it seems to be a pretty good example of you know, one of the reasons why independent sponsors often prefer those capital providers that have the ability to do both debt and equity because they, you know, are still thinking with their equity hats on, you know, when when things go south, right? No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I look, there are lots of different equity or different providers that bring a lot of different pluses and minuses to the table. But, but for, for sure, when you have somebody that's willing to plug in has the wherewithal to plan, uh, plug in things at different levels of the balance sheet, but is also thinking, and these folks clearly are, in terms of their equity recovery, uh, that provides some flexibility to the independent sponsor and to the company in terms of its growth and liquidity going forward. Yeah, and just, and just kind of backing up to some of the, the triggers that are out there for control. I mean, obviously, going back to the, the secure lender remedies, I mean, um, you know, technically, most most loan documents are going to provide that if there's any event of default, be it you know financial covenant default or payment default or any any of those items, that they you know technically have the the right to step in and control the um, you know exercise their the right to over the equity and exercise control over the company. But we typically don't see that happening right away. People are not usually very quick on the trigger. It's usually that is sort of a you know last ditch effort if thing other kind of workout or restructurings aren't working over the course of you know several quarters or a year or more. And I would I would also add in that case a lot of lenders are really pretty hesitant unless unless they already have a significant you know they already have a board seat or they have some other significant equity stake in the company they're pretty hesitant to to go that route and to take on the fiduciary duties that come with running running a company. So it really depends on really depends on the lender's incentives and their appetite and, and their expertise at actually running an operating business. And not all of them have the stomach to do that. Yeah, that's I think that's a great point. I think they don't have a stomach to do that. A lot of them are not built for that. You know, we joked even uh, I was on uh, talking to a, a direct lender the other day who said they don't do a lot of equity co-invest and they don't do a lot of riskier kind of uh, deals where they would have to be in any sort of a workout. We, in the lender world, we joke about that as being the 80-20 rule where 20% of your portfolio is going to take 80% of your time. So, you know, this is one reason why, you know, these, and it probably holds true for a lot of family offices or other equity providers, sole equity providers, that, you know, depending on the amount of the stake that they have in the company, it may not be worth their while to actually spend a lot of time trying to rehabilitate a company. And so for, for that's one of the reasons maybe, in, in large part, maybe the independent sponsor role has grown so substantially because you've got a lot of people running around with money, but not time or have other things that they're focused on. And I think that holds true in terms of the original investment as well as, you know, when things go wrong. But another quick example of what we've seen is where, you know, there were two, there were two um, also FDIC uh, investors, but doing a substantial equity investment. So basically, their, half of their investment was in the equity, not the debt, backing an independent sponsor who had um, industry experience. The, the company kind of floundered off and on for a period of time. And, 
the even I think they were prepping the company for a sale back in it was early as 2018, 2019, COVID hit. It affected the company drastically and people kind of let it work itself out. And the intent sponsor was very involved in working itself out. But once the company started recovering, I gotta tell you, those two those the the two financial backers kind of swooped in and started taking control of the destiny of the company because at that point also, and this is also a potential consideration that the independent sponsor has, particularly depending on the type of financial backer it's working with, you know, certain family offices probably have a longer run rate in which they're willing to have their money deployed. They may not be on the five-year turnaround. They may have a little bit of a longer leash, but this was a 2014 platform, and the, the, the funds were looking to wind down. This was a, 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 one of their last investments, and they were ultimately willing to sell for far less on 12:31 of last year than they really probably would have commanded even six months uh, into this year. And so they had a little bit of a time getting management on board, but they swooped, they basically, that was a situation where they swooped in to make sure that this sale got done because they were, they were needing to wind down their funds. And that, that deal was certainly kind of long in the tooth, right, in the, in the private equity world, but it seems, it actually raises an interesting question, which is whether, you know, independent sponsors should consider what's the fund life for their backers if, if they're going to get into a transaction where they really need to kind of prove themselves within a shorter period of time or if they're going to have the runway that they need to to actually kind of prove out the story. I'm not sure that I've heard anyone do that, at least, you know, in a way that that they've discussed it with me, but I, I hopefully they're doing that in the background. I, I wanted to I wanted to jump on one of the things in, in what you said that I thought was really interesting and worth elaborating on. Um, you'd mentioned that when one of the independent sponsors had lost control, that their management fee was shut off. And so I think one of the really interesting things and worth thinking about here is what is the impact if when the independent sponsor loses control, if they had control uh, in the first place, what is the impact on their economics? I can tell you that what I've typically seen is it has no effect on the closing fee or the carry, but that, yes, the management fee will be either reduced or completely shut off. Um, you know, hand the floor to you, to, to Ann and Alex. What, what do you typically see and, and what should folks be thinking about with respect to that? Alex, do you want to talk about it from at least the, sure. you know, kind of sure, the, the yeah. that side? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and this is another one where there there may be some overlap um, between the debt and the, the equity considerations, but I think you know typically the the loan agreement is going to have conditions around when that management fee is going to be able to be paid. You know, and typically that would include uh, financial covenant compliance. And so, to the extent that the company is not performing and not n- not meeting the financial covenants and kind of performing to to the model, that management fee can be shut off at any time by the by the lenders. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because it sort of depends how the, you know, how bad the performance is. I think if um, folks are quick to shut that management fee off, that may be okay if there's a reasonable prospect of, of a turnaround in the short term. But I think it gets tougher because, you know, for a lot of independent sponsors, that's really a huge 
part of their economics. And so if they see that the value of the company is deteriorating rapidly um, and their carry is kind of going away because there's really not, there, there's not going to be a recovery for them at their step in the waterfall and, and they're not getting paid a management fee, then it, it may be difficult to keep those to keep the independent sponsor engaged. They may be kind of looking for the next opportunity if they if they're not getting that that management fee and and their um the carry is looking less and less likely to be in the money. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right because it also that management fee generally covers their ongoing expense. It is it can be a little bit of a goose, but it also covers their ongoing expenses to the extent they have any staff that is assisting with the the administration of this portfolio company, and particularly if you know, I, I know in this, you know, in, in this one example I'm, I'm working on right now, there's been a significant amount of time spent preparing this company for for sale and talking to a, a number of different buyers. Um, you know, think about the investment banking fee you would you would have, and so you know, this independent sponsor did negotiate a separate transaction fee to be engaged as a banker, essentially for this. For the sale, but they were still entitled to, you know, a, a management, a quarterly management fee that would be what was going to be turned on uh, when the senior leverage uh, hit a certain threshold, uh, meaning there was not so much senior debt on the company. But it also required the consent of the sub-debt holders, who were also now some of the, the main equity holders. And I think there had been, there was just correspondence on this literally several days ago that there was uh, an idea that the independent sponsor thought they had earned their quarterly management fee for the fourth quarter of last year and certainly the beginning of this quarter. And there was some question about whether that was the case. And the independent sponsor had just uh, agreed to serve at the request of everyone else as the seller representative for the sale of the company. Uh, in the deal being negotiated right now, which of course you know takes some time and effort. Even if there's even if there's no indemnification uh, claim, you still got purchase price adjustment, networking capital, workout matters, as well as any potential dispute. You have the wind down of various uh, entities and the final K ones and all those types of things. And and there was a question whether everyone was going to allow their management fee to be uh, paid. And the independent sponsor said, okay, that's fine. And, I, 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 that's your choice, but then I don't, you know, then why don't, why doesn't one of you serve as a seller rep? <laughs> and so that was, that was that, that was actually the outcome. It was not, it was not acrimonious. It was nothing. It was, it was not an issue, but it is a big deal. We, you know, these are considerations, especially from an equity holder standpoint. So this could be really interesting when you've got an equity backer. Uh, that is different than the debt financial backer, backers and whether you have potential conflict of interest where, you know, the debt providers to Alex's point are going to shut off that management fee. It's very standard and accepted totally across the lower middle market that that management fee gets uh, shut off in a default on the debt or perform a default on the debt. And the equity backer may actually want that management fee to continue because even though that also comes out of their own pocket to some extent, they're banking on, especially if they don't have any debt, they're really banking on this independent sponsor to grow their equity investment. And so one of the key issues in any downside scenario involving an independent sponsor is how do you protect the economics of every financial backer, but yet to the extent valuable, keep the independent sponsor engaged and incentivized. And so a lot of times we'll see agreements that even if their management fee is set off, 
you know, it certainly comes back and there are catch-ups. They're always even under debt uh, documents. There are catch-up rights that if the company starts to perform again, they, they, they get caught up o- over time. But we'll see the idea of success fees, um, that if they can get the company back to X level of EBITDA or, you know, something like that, they're going to get a success fee because, you know, it becomes a, a, a significant tension between making sure there's not undue cash leakage, but who's in the best position to drive this company forward to success? And that depends on all the parties involved. Yeah, you actually anticipated my kind of the next thought of where I had some questions is, you know, how does the, how do things turn back to normal if they turn back to normal? Um, And you talked a little bit about turning the management fee back on or, you know, ways to get the, keep the independent sponsor engaged or incented. What have you seen when the, when the independent sponsor loses control or the documents provide for them to have a loss of control upon certain, you know, triggers, are they able to get control back? Um, You know, are you seeing that or are you seeing it as a one-way switch where at that point it's up to the financial backer if and under what conditions they want to hand the keys back to the independent sponsor? So that's a question that I've actually started asking myself and that came to my focus just in actually reviewing some uh, situations and documents for this podcast. Um, Because I will say that I most typically see a one-way switch, apart from the the example I just gave about, you know, under debt documents, the management fee can get shut off and subordinated under certain circumstances, but there are catch-up possibilities. But a lot of the board's kind of flip positions uh, or provisions I see are more of a one-way switch. In part, I think because they only come into play when you've really reached a really difficult situation, a significantly difficult situation. It's not just that the company is not performing for a, a quarter or two and the lenders are trying to shut off the management fee just to pour down all cash leakage. Usually when you have a separate board flip, in a uh, document related to equity ownership only, that it is it is really some of the biggest things that there's not, you know, if, if to the extent there was supposed to be any current payment on an equity interest, it's not being paid, tax, it's tax distributions are not being paid, there's a bankruptcy threat, there's a bankruptcy filing. You've got significant financial issues established over, either based on significant misses of, financial hurdles or over significant quarters of time, as opposed to, a, a, you know, it, not that any event, event of default under a credit facility comes quick and easy, but we're not talking about the bare minimum event of default. What we don't tend to see is that natural flip back, at least under the, uh, under the documentation that, you know, if the company does X, Y, Z, you're going to flip back into this. It's not unheard of. We just don't tend to see that. I think where it comes up more frequently is practicality. If the company, if the company actually starts performing significantly, I think there's just a practical, um, a practical switch back to what makes sense for everybody's alignment. Yeah. So out of the two, as between the two kind of examples you've been talking about, there's the one that's kind of the turnaround success story where the independent sponsor is serving effectively as an investment banker. And then there's the other one where the company was sold and there was a, a little bit of a turnaround story, but perhaps not maximizing the value or getting back to where they thought it should be. In in the first one, 
you know, because of the practicality that you're talking about, it seems like they, you know, they were willing to compensate and incentivize the the independent sponsor because because there was a good a good turnaround story. But in the other example, there wasn't really a there was you know the switch was a one way switch, right? I mean that it, it didn't those those folks didn't kind of recover their their economics at that point. Yeah, that's that's the the one way switch is consistent with what I've seen yeah. where it doesn't just flip back. The understanding is that you know the financial backer may at some point flip it, get, give them their control back, but it's the financial backer's decision under what conditions and when. And so that's to make sure that they're entirely comfortable that they they want to and that the time is right and the conditions right to do that. That's always what I've seen. I've never seen, you know, if you check these objective boxes that the control always flips back. So I, I, think, I think that puts it right. Because basically, at the time that you've reached enough issues that you flipped the board, if you flipped control, things have gone poorly enough that at that point everyone's in uncharted waters, and you're just going to kind of basically take it one day at a time. Yeah, the relationship is likely to be tense at that point, tense to say the least. Thank you very much, Anne and Alex. I think this has been a really great, informative discussion. Uh, you clearly have a lot of experience navigating these issues and have thought a lot about them. So really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing those uh, those insights. Thanks, Jeff. It's been uh, it's been fun having this discussion. And uh, yeah, folks can obviously find us on the on the web. And uh, happy to have any follow up discussions with uh, any listeners out there. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods Independent Sponsor Podcast. To learn more about today's discussion and our commitment to the independent sponsor community, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.